You are listening to highlights from the One Planet podcast interview with Avi Loeb, best-selling author and the longest-serving chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy. If we are not uh, open uh, to discover wonderful things, we will never discover them. It very much depends on us allowing ourselves to explore and find new things. My mother used to tell me when I was a kid that when I was born as an infant, I was very different from the kids, the other babies in the room. I was looking around with open eyes and I should say that that's where it all started. Once I got out of the womb of my mother and I started looking around, I was very curious. And the great privilege of being a scientist is that you don't need to give up on that curiosity. You can maintain your childhood curiosity. And I take full advantage of that. What is special about kids, and by the way, I wrote my book, uh, Extraterrestrial, for the young people. What's special about young people, and kids in particular, is that uh, they're not afraid of asking questions. They're not worried about their image. They're often bumping into objects because they're not careful enough, and they discover the world. And they put skin in the game. They get bruised sometimes, and they make mistakes. You know, that's part of the learning experience. You know, we tend to think that uh, babies are not very smart, but that's not the case. Uh, when they play, we think it's for fun, but in fact, they are learning about the world. They are taking an object and turning it around, looking at it from all angles. It now turns out that it's very difficult to actually train a robot to behave like a baby uh, because a, a robot that is trained for a particular task if you change the circumstances a little bit, the robot will get confused, will not be able to cope with that. Whereas a child is much more flexible in thinking. And part of it is the play that the child uh, approaches the world with, trying to figure out what things are and allowing to look at things from different angles. And, you know, being a scientist is exactly like that. Uh, you are trying to look at evidence, at clues. And very often, the evidence is incomplete. You're not sure about how to understand it, how to interpret it. So it's work in progress. You're trying to figure it out. You put possibilities on the table. And I'm acting just like that. Now, of course, you would ask, why wouldn't everyone else behave like that? Because it's a bit risky. Because if you make a mistake, your image may be tainted. If you take risks, you might be wrong. So most uh, adults, once they mature and become adults out of uh, their childhood, they are careful. They don't want to get bruised. They don't want to make mistakes. They want to maintain an image that looks much better than they are. And um, this motivation of uh, maintaining an image uh, prevents taking risks, prevents uh, innovation. And that's why, you know, you don't find many people that do it. In fact, I find many more <laughs> that do it in the commercial sector, in um, companies like Google, Apple, SpaceX, um, Blue Origins. Uh, th these are, there are groups of people there that are taking much more risk than the people in academia that are worried about their image. And so that's the fundamental difference. You know, I, I was asked by the Harvard the Gazette, the, the official uh, newspaper of, of Harvard University, what is the one thing I would change about the world? And I said, I would like my colleagues to behave more like kids. I, as a kid, was very uh, excited about philosophy and I couldn't pursue it because I, I was drafted to the military. I, I, I was born in Israel and, and uh, I preferred uh, to study physics uh, as a substitute because that was allowed when I served in the military, a special program. 
And then I became an astrophysicist by circumstances. But I realized that even though it was an arranged marriage, I'm actually married to my true love. Because in astrophysics, when we study the universe, we are addressing fundamental questions uh, that used to be part of philosophy using the scientific method. You know, I'll give you a couple of examples. One is, how did everything start? You know, what was there at the beginning of the universe uh, around the Big Bang or before the Big Bang? And this is a very fundamental question. How did everything start? Another question that we address uh, scientifically now is, are we alone? Is there another kid on the cosmic block? And if there is, is that kid smarter than we are? You know, my daughter, I have two daughters, and when they were very young, they, they were at home, and they used to think that they are the smartest in the world and that the world centers on them because their world was the home. But uh, when we took them to the kindergarten, they saw other kids and they realized that they might not be the smartest. And that was a shock for them. And uh, if I would ask them, they would obviously tell me that they prefer to stay at home because this way they can maintain the illusion that they are the smartest in the center of the world. So we as a civilization, we didn't mature yet. You know, we didn't go out of our home and find others. And I, I really think it's a very important goal for the future for us to figure out whether there are neighbors uh, around other stars that may be smarter than we are. If there are civilizations out there that are much more advanced than we are, they might look at us just like we look at ants. They might think we are nothing special. There are lots of ants on a sidewalk when you walk down the street and you don't pay special attention to any of them. So it's quite possible that in the hierarchy of all possible uh, animals in the universe, you know, we are not uh, near the top. We are somewhere in the middle, quite uh, typical. A lot of things like us existed, you know, because the sun is a relative latecomer. Most of the stars formed billions of years before the sun. And if they had civilization like, like ours around them, those civilizations were billions of years ahead of us. And uh, so we might not be first and we might not be even special. And I think the one thing I learned from astronomy, studying the sky over decades, is a sense of modesty. You know, we, we should not assume that it's all about us. You know, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, he argued that we are at the center of the world, that uh, there are spheres centered on us. And, and that was just like my daughters, you know, thinking that we are at the center. And for a thousand years, uh, people believed him because it flattered their ego. And then uh, Copernicus and Galileo realized, oh, no, actually, it looks like the Earth moves around the sun. And the, the philosophers at the time of Galileo put him in house arrest. They said, we don't want to look through your telescope. We know that the sun moves around the Earth. And uh, the only problem is this maintained their ignorance. Reality doesn't care whether we ignore it or not. And the Earth continued to move around the sun. So we are not at the center for sure. And, um, and then, you know, people thought, oh, maybe the sun and the earth are very special. But then it turns out now, as of uh, last year, we realized that about half of all the sun-like stars have a planet the size of the earth, roughly the same separation. So what we find in our backyard is not special. It's not privileged in any way. And so the, the moral of this story is you should never assume that we are privileged, that we are special. Uh, because we probably are not. Uh, whenever we assumed that in the past, we were wrong.
So when I look at the universe, you know, I don't take anything for granted. A lot of my colleagues take things uh, for granted. Uh, for example, you know, we find the laws of physics here on Earth through experiments. And then uh, we apply the same laws of physics and it, they seem to hold throughout the universe. That's amazing. You know, most scientists just say, okay, so what? But to me, it's quite remarkable because when, you know, when I see my daughter's room in the morning, it's a mess. It's a chaos, chaotic. Everything is out of place. And so why isn't the universe like that? You know, why isn't the universe like my daughter's room in the morning? It's very organized. It obeys the same laws. You know, here on earth, we are trying to establish laws and a lot of people disobey the laws. So why is nature obeying a strict set of laws everywhere? That's remarkable. Also, nature is sometimes extremely beautiful. Every morning at 5 a.m., I see the sunrise and it looks different every day. You know, so nature is, is remarkable. And I developed this uh, deep connection to nature when I grew up on a farm. And I'm much more connected to nature than to people. You know, because what matters is the evidence. You need to pay attention to nature. You know, science is a dialogue with nature. You have to listen to nature. A lot of people think of science as a monologue where they say what nature is supposed to be. The other thing about people is, you know, very often, uh, you know, they try to bring you to their point of view, irrespective of whether the evidence is there or not. You know, there is this uh, story about Socrates. Uh, he was... Uh, uh, a very admirable uh, Greek philosopher, and he developed this method of dialogue with people and this, the Socratic uh, method of discussion, which is very much practiced by lawyers today. And uh, Socrates uh, was blamed by the society he lived in as uh, a person that corrupts the youth because he was advising the youth to be independent in, in their thinking. And uh, he was put in jail and was asked to drink uh, poison. That was Socrates. Galileo was put in house arrest and because he, he tried to claim that uh, the, the earth moves around the sun. And there are many other examples. Uh, Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake. And there are many such examples. Now, you ask yourself, uh, what would happen to them if they live today? Maybe they would not be... Uh, forced to drink poison, they would not be burnt on the stake, but they would be potentially cancelled uh, by the Twitter mob. You know, they would immediately, I mean, instead of drinking poison, they would, uh, everything they say would, you know, people would just denounce it, ridicule it. And, and um, the moral of this story is that, you know, if you don't pay attention to Twitter, you don't drink the poison. And you can think independently and creatively and pay attention. You know, in, in basketball, uh, the coaches often say, keep your eyes on the ball, not on the audience. What happens on social media is you keep your eyes on the audience rather than on the evidence. So I admire nature. I'm at awe with nature. And that's my sense of spirituality, that connection to nature rather than to people. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this program. If you'd like to get involved with the One Planet podcast, listen to the rest of this episode, or learn more about environmental projects, please click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.